What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. You are listening to the official podcast of The Playlist on IndieWire. I'm your host, Eric McClanahan, and joining me today to discuss Ex Machina is Playlist Editor-in-Chief Rodrigo Perez and my co-host on Adjust Your Tracking, Joe Von Oppen. Ever since Ollie Littleton wrote his A-grade review for The Playlist for its January UK release, in which he called Ex Machina the first great film of 2015, we've been champions of Alex Garland's directorial debut, Now, with the film being released wider, we thought we'd dive into a spoiler-heavy discussion, looking at Garland's intentions versus our own reading of the material, and generally figuring out what the film is saying. Not only is it a film that we really, really like here at The Playlist, but it's one that breeds heady and fun movie discussion. Just a reminder to you folks that this is a spoiler-heavy discussion of Ex Machina, so we recommend you come back here after seeing the film so you can dive into all the themes and other elements that we discuss in detail here. If you're looking for a more broad review of the film, you can find that over at the Adjust Your Tracking movie podcast. Just look for us on iTunes or go to newsroom.nwfilm.org to find our archives of the podcast there. So without further ado, let's drop you into our discussion as Joe Von Oppen kicks things off for us. Watching it sort of roll out, you know, across the country since it's got a, a wider opening since we discussed it. It's just I'm I'm curious how it's playing to a lot of people because it's a movie whose ideas and stories come like, you know, they're 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 not forsaken for like, you know, a spectacle or, you know, they're they're just not like thrown under the bus in order to like accommodate a more spoon fed audience. So it's just like, it's nice that something like that is catching on and it's doing as well as it, you know, initially was, and it kind of still is. And so well, it's, just, it's, it's totally doing well, right? Like it's doing really well in wide release too. Like it's like, yeah. it, it might end up being, um, a two four's biggest hit ever. I know. Yeah. It's, it's, nearing, it's on its way. In, yeah. It's, it's on nearing its way. in on spring breakers, which is yeah. that movie. As much as I love spring breakers, that was a movie that had the sort of snatch and grab, you know, uh, they could they could appeal to an audience that never would have liked a Harmony Korine movie. Right, right. There was sort of a Trojan horse effect to that movie being successful. Whereas is I that think... the sequel title, Snatch and Grab, <laughs> Spring Breakers Two? It damn well should be. This it seems like they're seeking it out. You know, yeah. they've like it's getting a good word of mouth, and it's like it's offering something that's largely absent in movies of late. So it's I think it's exciting that people are actually hearing about it and they're coming to it as opposed to just blindly kind of devouring what they heard maybe somebody said they should see do you know what the turing test is yeah i know what the turing test is it's when a human interacts with a computer 
And if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. And what does a pass tell us? That the computer has artificial intelligence. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right, Caleb. You got it. Because if that test is passed, you are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. The thing I find really interesting about Alex Garland in all the research I've been doing and interviews he's done for this film is how against uh, auteur theory and or like the idea that all directors are the author of a film. You know, he's like, yeah. he admits, he's like, there are guys like Woody Allen, I think he notes, you know, the, the ones that we would think of that he's like, you can't deny they are an auteur. But uh, I, I actually kind of respect that he's like, fuck, the the whole director as the author thing like it's a I think he it's really impressive how much he's embraced the collaborative aspect of filmmaking and how much his film has benefited his first directed film has benefited from just surrounding himself with other really good people I think it's really refreshing like to hear him say that and he's just basically like fuck out tour theory like <laughs> I, I he's like I I'm a collaborator I need all my collaborators and I I think he's so spot on like I mean I I basically agree with him, and then I, I mean, I agree with his theory that it, essentially, like, look, there are some people who are, like, auteurs, you know, like the David Finchers and the Woody Allens, but then there's a lot of people who just aren't, and, and that's okay, because, you know, like, it is a collaborative process, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know, I just, I found it super refreshing to hear him say that. He's a writer first, you know, like, right. he, he came he came into it as a novelist and then a screenwriter, and so, like, to service the story, I think, is what he really kind of holds dear and like to the the sort of just ego of being a director you know or an auteur like he just he sees like the story should come first and that's what he wants to service and if he's a director it's all to sort of to service the story and i think that's that's refreshing yeah well it's also like it it sort of what you just said sort of underscores why it's even more the all the more impressive because auteurs generally are writer directors you know Mm -hmm. they come up with everything the vision and he's the writer as well as this, but he's still like, you know, it's like, I don't really care about any of that stuff. Yeah, he's really resistant to that label. And uh, pretty much that's the constant I've noticed in a lot of his interviews he's been doing. I had uh, uh, hosted uh, two Q&As with him. So I had actually been around him a lot. And I, and I you know, I, we did like two 30 minute Q&As and we spoke and we, you know, spoke everything about the movie. And then so I, I on one way I have his like, his intention drilled into my head. Yeah. Um, and, um, sometimes I, I find that gets in the way of my thinking about a film. Like someone will have a conversation and then I'll find myself going, yeah, but well, what the director actually meant. And, and then so sometimes I go like, well, you know, who, who cares what the director meant really? Because as he, his, he himself has said, you know, interpretation is everything. And, um, once you release a movie into the wild, it's everybody's and it's every, it's a 50, 50 thing. It's the author gives you 50% and then you put in the rest of the 50% with your, um, interpretation. So, um, his intention is kind of like almost thrown me off a little bit. Like I like the movie a lot. I think this is a great movie, but it's, um, it hasn't stuck with me or held with me as much as I think it should. Like if you ask me, so what is on your top 10 or what, or what are the kind of films is they usually have some sort of like emotional quality to them. And, mm-hmm. and maybe to me on some levels, um, 
that's missing. I'm interested though, Rod, in um you're you feeling like just a little bit like you're 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 not really finding the enthusiasm for the movie that everybody else around you seems to be having. Do you find yourself to be kind of a contrarian at times? No, so- no, 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 no. Like, I mean, it's, and especially that's certainly something I don't strive to do. That's for sure. Um, I have no interest in being a contrarian and I, I maybe sometimes find myself in that position sometimes, but as I, I, I hope that you would, from this conversation, you would see that it comes from a, a pretty honest place. No, no, for sure. It's just that, like, I sometimes I don't strive for it either. I just find myself naturally <laughs> falling into that role. And sometimes with a movie like this, like, if you felt like it was something that you were going to line up with entirely, sometimes you feel mm-hmm. hurt and like it doesn't achieve everything it, that you want it to. But it still is something that's like exemplary and like worthy well, it, of of praise. It just doesn't connect the way you really wanted it to. Well, the funny thing is, it's like I saw it and I went, "Wow, this is pretty fucking great." And then mm-hmm. uh, I spent some time with Alex and talked and talked and talked about the film. And, you know, he made his intentions ex- extremely clear. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas, you know, someone like Nolan might go like, sorry, dude, just that's the movie. Like, what? Why? Why did I make this choice? Why did I make that choice? Um, figure it out yourself. Or, you know, I, I want you to. Whereas Alex is very much, this is exactly what I intended. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that... And with me reflecting upon it, reflecting on the movie and reflecting on our conversations have put me in a, in a bit of a position where I've almost thought so much about that. The experience is a little bit gone and I've been in my head and I've been really thinking about some of the mechanics of the film and how they don't work for me. Like, I guess I'll just jump in for one thing specifically. Um, and I guess it's part of his misdirection thing, but the movie begins, its point of view begins with, Dom Hall Gleason's character. And then it takes you into this world and he meets another character. He meets Oscar Isaac, the sort of um, the hilarious sort of mad scientist versus dude. I love that about him. I think yeah. that's my favorite. He's macho actually. Nerd. Is that fair, Eric? Macho nerd. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like he's my, yeah. he's my favorite character by far, mm-hmm. by far. I think he's amazing and hysterical. The humor that he brings to it, I think is adds a, a dimension to it that I absolutely adore. And I think it's really funny, but so he meets them and then we meet who Alex believes to be the protagonist of the movie or the Ava. one that he wants us to. Yes. Ava, right. the, the, the AI who he wants us to ultimately sympathize with. And I find myself having problems with that because the construction of the movie is built as here's the person you're following. Here's the point of view that you're following. And it shifts. And I'm not saying a movie can't do that. I think when a movie can, I think baton passes and POV are some of my favorite things. In fact, I've wanted to do a feature about that specifically. Right. Like movies that effectively do uh, baton passes of POV. I think it's fantastic when it works. But um, to me, uh, it it's, doesn't quite uh, doesn't quite get there. I don't know what you, how you guys feel about it. I guess what I thought when the the sort of climactic scene or maybe it's the penultimate scene where you find out how Ava actually does escape and she cruelly leaves Domnell Gleeson's character there to, uh, I guess, I assume he's just going to die eventually. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. Really brutal, you know, cold thing. But uh, what I liked about it is the movie for me actually works as a, it it suddenly took on a feminist uh, dimension for me where uh, 
hear me out on this. I, I think Alex Garland plays around with all various kinds of genre within one movie that he makes every time. Like he's willing, he's, he's got a sort of South Korean sensibility like that. Like a lot of South Korean films will genre hop. Right. And for yeah, me, yeah. this movie, this movie was all along a science fiction exploration, um, a very heady sort of talky movie that then became, um, it sort of took on a, a dimension of, the same reason I actually get satisfaction out of watching, um, and hear me out on this because Joe has given me shit for this before, <laughs> the original I Spit on Your Grave. If you if you think about Ex Machina on that kind of level, the sort of rape revenge, not that it's literally rape revenge in Ex Machina, but there's a satisfaction to be had where you see the character get, have the, the character that, that's been wronged gets a gets to have a come up and put against the people that have done that to her. And there's something really satisfying that I didn't see coming. And that was the part that surprised me the most that I um, really loved about the ending of X Machina is I suddenly was like, Oh, I I've been following the wrong character. It's all about Ava. And it, so it kind of worked for me in that sense where it did feel like, Oh, all along that's the trick of the movie in some ways is that she has been the person that, uh, we maybe should be empathizing with or viewing this through, but it's just been obscured mm-hmm. through the the games of the the narrative. Well, you, you well, landed on it exactly the way Alex intended it. Um, it didn't land that way for me, but I think you've nailed it on the head exactly how. So, so, so maybe the movie lands perfectly for you because you you've got it essentially. You feel bad for Ava. <sighs> feel bad for yourself, man. One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons in the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction. I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. There you go again, Mr. Quotable. There you go again. It's not my quote. It's what Oppenheimer said after he made the The atomic atomic bomb. bomb. Yeah, I know what it is, dude. With the sort of redirect of the, um, the, the POV of the movie, it's sort of like, it's interesting because we're aligning, as human beings watching this movie, we're aligning with who we think is the main character. And ultimately... Um, when it's about AI and like consciousness, we're the, the, the main character that's going to carry on in any sort of story is going to be the person who can outlive all of the people who ultimately are just fated to die, which are human beings. And I just think that that was an interesting redirect. And I, I, I really enjoyed just like the, the image of the main who we thought was the main character just banging against like you know an an enclosure basically he's trapped he's trapped in his body he's going to die and like um basically Ava can continue on she's consciousness she can be infinite you know mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. that just like thematically really worked and it's just like in a in a movie that similar to sunshine like it sort of takes on very briefly a a thriller kind of tone Mm -hmm. for a section much less so than sunshine being like a slasher movie for the last leg of it (laughs) but um it just like i felt like that it worked on an excitement level and then it delivered these ideas that like just kind of landed really well for me like as an audience member that conversation that oscar isaac and domnell gleason have sort of at it's like a in one uh 
uh, it's it's yet another amazing sort of location scene outside of this amazing house that most of the film takes place in where they really make use of the landscape behind them and they're just talking about how uh he oscar isaac says something like do you feel bad for ava because you shouldn't you know you should feel bad for us and what i really love about that scene is not only how it, it's very you could argue it's on the nose with like hitting you but like uh i don't i don't think garland ever overdoes the sense of like portent like he never makes anything overly portentous and like or pretentious you know what i mean like he just is sort of he's giving you scenes that are uh, ostensibly exposition but he's presenting it in a really fascinating way through dialogue between two characters that would actually talk like this and present mm-hmm. ideas like that and that's another thing it's like a natural skill that garland has is he finds the right way to enter a story through the choosing like the right kind of character to put you there. Yeah. I wonder if like the, the sort of on the nose, the sort of dopely on the nose stuff that, you know, it, we saw on the beach when we revisited it recently, Eric, you and I, when we reviewed it, yes, like all the, all the on the nose stuff, I found it again in rewatching sunshine. Like there's, mm. there's a, there's a fixation on kind of heart of dark, like a heart of darkness, like tale where people just get like, too immersed in something they get lost. And this movie, you know, explores that as well. And so in Sunshine, you have the I think it's the like the therapist on the spaceship mm-hmm. who like as the first person is getting scorched by the sun trying to fix the shields on the the spaceship. He's like whispering to him through the headset like, "What do you see? What do you see?" And it's like, "All right. Let's <laughs> let, that's just a little that's a little ridiculous." Mm-hmm. And I would just wonder if like Danny Boyle, who's a he's a he's an outstanding filmmaker, but I just wonder if like these ideas that are uh, potentially a little too heady, a little too I don't know, just like philosophical. If if he can't naturalize them, then maybe Alex Garland is finally you know in his own hands is able to naturalize these ideas as not just ideas, but you know like a fabric of the actual story. Right. Right. Boyle, you can some I can I sometimes feel like with Boyle that there's not always a confidence in the ideas going on in his movies where absolutely his his thing is all about propulsive, you know, like moving mm-hmm. forward. And and that works for his type of movies. But I, I can also hurt his movies sometimes. So, yeah, I think I think what you're seeing with Ex Machina is is like Garland really again, it's that confidence. Man, sometimes I really don't want to talk to directors. I yeah. just want to enjoy a movie, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, because and then, like I'm, I'm talking. Talking to you guys, and I'm like, everything you're saying about the ending and how you're seeing it, regardless of whether I've talked to Alex or not, makes complete sense to me. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is totally landed in the way. Like, I'm almost like thinking, okay, I completely missed the point. Although I didn't necessarily miss the point because I I get that. I just didn't feel that. Mm. You know what I mean? Sure. I I understand it, but on a, on a on a on a visceral, maybe like a emotional level, like I don't feel it quite in the same way. Like, you know, um, he's talked a, a lot about, and I can't get that term out of my head, but like, you know, I, I guess like the, the thing is for me, like you're the way you, you see it as like, you know, she's getting revenge on these people who have, uh, have, you know, done this wrong to her in a way There's it's just sort of like, she's the, the slave and they're the master. Yeah. And that, that ending if you're looking at it that way that ending makes absolutely complete sense but he's but dom hall the kid is not he's he's like a pawn and she has essentially in in that sense she's manipulated him and tricked him Mm -hmm. and um 
that's fine too because she's canny, she's smart, and she's she's uh, she's obviously got intelligence and on multiple levels, and she's played him. Um, but the, what was working for me is sort of the emotional level between the two of them, right? And um, how they were sort of bonding in it, and and to me, what on an emotional level makes more sense is because she talks about he talks about a lot about like select, selective empathy, and the idea that when he talks to Kyoto. They go, okay, now we're going to get rid of these bozos um, and we're going to be free and that's it. And that was, you know, and he, she has empathy for Kyoto because Kyoto has been essentially a slave as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's never had any kind of reason to um, have any ill will towards uh, Domhall's character other than that he's flesh and blood. Um, and they have like a connection in it and he's really, you know, he's the one who essentially frees her and – um, for her to just go, uh, like, I, I think for him and, and I, and, and again, maybe stuck on it what Alex said, but he was saying like, you know, like a critical point in the movie is the, the, that, that wordless scene where Kyoto and, and, uh, uh, Ava t- like speak, but they don't speak, right. They don't right. say anything. They just look at each other right. and they have an understanding cause they don't need to speak. And that's the sort of, uh, third act turning point in a way that it's like, okay, yes, da 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 I have empathy for you. You've been a slave. I've been a slave. Um, I'm going to free us and we're going to f- screw these guys. If, if that's supposed to be like such a huge turning point, I don't feel like I felt that. I feel like if, if you're telling me that this is like, then I, I feel like, okay, you need to reshoot that scene then in a way that, that makes me really, really feel this, whether it's, uh, a, a close shot or two eyes looking at each other or something. You really need to sell that to me in a bigger way than you did. Um, right. because it, I think it's shot like from afar and, um, uh, I, I just don't feel it. And so when she, when she, uh, uh, you know, in a way betrays him, um, because the movie has led me to believe, uh, that, you know, he's been the protagonist and then sort of had, uh, my sympathy led to him uh, throughout most of the movie. It's begun with him and started a journey. She's the third character introduced. Um, although I get exactly everything what you're saying, I just don't necessarily feel it. So right. while I am not necessarily disappointed or I'm not necessarily like, what the fuck? <laughs> I do have a lingering kind of um, mild emotional dissatisfaction. There's similarities um with uh, you know other A24 movies like because I feel like this movie tonally is is kind of similar to Under the Skin mm. um just in terms of like its exploration of what it means to be human and right. and whatnot and it's or, just like or the, what it means to be a victim or the oppressor you know yeah the flip. yeah absolutely yeah and yeah. there this the lack of dramatic involvement I felt with that movie ultimately just left me outside of it and frustrated and with with this movie I felt a sense of involvement even though like the the sense of aligning with a character that eventually just gets abandoned and kind of betrayed like i i still felt an involvement with the a dramatic involvement that right. i felt left outside of and under the skin so i can see how that can happen well, just because yeah yeah well, let, let me say that i don't i i maybe i'm taking your term too literally but i, I will say my level of engagement and dramatic involvement in the movie is very high and it still is. And I, I wasn't uh, left outside of it. I just think that ending doesn't land emotionally 
for me in the same way. And I have to say that Under the Skin, I was like by far my favorite movie of the year last year. And um, as shit, I could talk about that movie all day because I think that movie is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Agreed. And yeah. I hate and, – and let me say – I hate when people use that term <laughs> and I try and use it as sparingly as possible and maybe it should be used only once a decade. <laughs> right. Right. You, you hate yourself right now for having used it a, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why the ending, I think emotionally and just everything works for me is the sort of the one, two punch of it. Like you get the gut punch of the guy you thought was your entry point. Your you, you guy that you, you do side with in a lot of ways, uh, your character being left for dead and you get that gut punch but then I actually think there's this strange sense of um, uh, Kubrickian hopefulness. And what I mean by that is if you guys have ever heard Stanley Kubrick's theory on The Shining is that people would be like, man, this is like a really dark, depressing story, Stanley, like when they were making it. And he would apparently say, actually, I find this to be a really hopeful movie. Uh, if you look <laughs> at it, if you look at it, if there's life after death, which is what this movie is saying, The Shining, then that's actually kind of a hopeful thing. If you look at it that way. And I think Garland looks at what could be a really dark uh, beginning of the end of humanity is essentially in some ways, this movie ends with the beginning of like T2, like judgment day, right? Like the, the machines have become sentient and who knows what she's going to do, but they are going to outlast the humans. She will. And I think he finds, uh, uh, he's, sw- he's able to swing in that last scene to like a sense of hope for her as being that thing that will live on no matter how dark or bad it gets for her to continue past humans. Like there is a sense of hope in that because suddenly, uh, the gut punch I got from one character being left for dead swung to me being like, Oh, I, this is her story. This is all about her right. all along. I, no, I don't it, it, it absolutely is. I mean, at least from his intention. And again, I'm stuck on that, which I, I feel like I wish I hadn't talked to him, but like, his intention <laughs> is that she's the character that you should sympathize with. That's who I wrote it for. That's the person that she's the protagonist and she's where your sympathy should be with. And so not that I didn't sympathize with her and not that I, that I didn't, uh, enjoy her character or like her character. I totally do. But the other thing is, is that, um, Dumbhall's character is an innocent, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's really the innocent in all this. And, and he gets, I, and uh, I guess some sort of weird thing is I feel like he doesn't deserve that. Like she should mm-hmm. take him. And, and I feel like, but she's also a robot and she's also right. like, fuck him. And, and I think the truer thing to happen is that she really wouldn't care about him. You know, like that's the unfortunate reality, but yet the, how the movie manipulates you so well is that like, Oh man, like that's a raw, that's beyond a raw deal that the Domhnall Gleeson character got. Like, that poor guy, you're like, he didn't deserve that. But that's, that's that gut punch that for me just works so well. Um, yeah. as, a, as a sort of classic dystopian uh, sci-fi film, you're absolutely right. It has to end that way. Right. Um, I, I'm just uh, emotionally, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on how it feels like not quite like he's innocent. He's this and that. And, and it also completely fits with um, the, the, the movie's uh, myriad theme of misdirection. Like, you know what I mean? Like I was yes. say, it twists. And, and so as a piece of architecture, it's like perfect. Right. It's like, and, and uh, why anybody, if the movie, like, okay, so if the movie lands with you the way, I guess, the filmmaker intends and you really see it as it uh, sounds like it did with you guys, I can understand why it's like, in your top 10 or even in your number one right now or whatever, because I got to imagine that's really fucking powerful and it really works and it just hits on all cylinders. And for me, it just slightly, 
don't know. It's just like overall just that emotional quality. Also, I got to say, what about that like the him cutting himself scene? Yes. I felt like that was really um, – not good. <laughs> I, I'm. That's the one scene where when he actually starts to go there, and you're like, no, like it. it that is the one scene that for me. Um, and I'm curious. I'm going to see it a second time actually tonight, so I'm excited mm. to see how that will work because uh-uh. that is the one scene that sort of sticks out in my mind a little bit. Is like, um, I'll put it in the context of other Alex Garland associated movies, whether he wrote them or wrote the book. You know, like The Beach. Me and Joe complained about that on our previous podcast was that movie takes leaps where you're like, hold on. Like, I know the movie's telling me this is happening to the character, but I don't buy it for a second. And uh, maybe that's something that um, is like a thing that crops up in these Garland movies. Sometimes is sunshine takes a turn and 28 days later in its third act takes a turn where you have to go with it or the movie might come undone for you. Um, maybe that's that, that I'm with you a little bit. That scene seems a little bit far-fetched that he would go that far. Like you have to think about the window, the condensed window of time that he's been there. Like he really moves fast in that theory. And it seems out of a little bit out of left field. It's great how it's subverted to be nothing in the end. And like Oscar Isaac uses it as a throwaway, like, dude, what were you doing? What was that all about? But to get there, you do need a scene where it's a little bit hard for, for yeah, to, to go with. Yeah, there's there's like the emotional leap in the the beach that we were talking about, where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio essentially has to lose his mind and enter the heart of darkness, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And so oh. it's just it's not dramatically plausible as you're watching it. And so with this, I I, I can see where that could be a, a pitfall, but for some reason, because you because he knows the movies you've seen, like he's seen the same movies. You were talking about this. Yeah. on adjust your tracking eric that like he's he, like he's a he's a complete cinephile so alex, he knows alex garland all, yeah yeah exactly so he, he knows all of the references that you're going to be drawing on thinking where the movie's going you're like yo he's going to be like um he's going to it's going to be like blade runner where he's he's one of the you know he's he's going to be one of the androids and like this is the scene where he like reaches in and he's going to see his own circuitry or whatever <laughs> and so like you don't get you're like oh oh ooh, Jesus and then like <laughs> but it is it is a leap but it's like it's a leap that I feel like the payoff ultimately kind of like outweighs the implausibility of it right I agree so yeah you know it's also not necessarily um, the implausibility of it I love I like it in in theory I think the execution of it cinematically is poor because right. it starts to take on some sort of like. Uh, like I think he would question. I think it's completely. I, I think it is plausible the way it's shot ahead, in this kind of like. Da, 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 da. It's yeah, like a. It's like music. our side conversation when it cuts out and starts like in the music and then like yeah. the the. It's like your signal is being jammed or something and it's. Uh, I don't know. I, I was just like, Ugh. I was like, what movie is this from? <laughs> right. It becomes more like, overtly intense than the whole movie has been up until then. Yeah. I'm like, who guest directed this scene? You know? <laughs> did you program her to flirt with me? If I did, would that be cheating? Wouldn't it? Caleb, what's your type? Of girl? No, of salad dressing. Yeah, of girl. What's your type of girl? You know what? Don't even answer that. Let's say it's black chicks. Okay, that's your thing. For the sake of argument, that's your thing, okay? Why is that your thing? Because you did a detailed analysis of all racial types and you cross-referenced that analysis with a points-based system? No. You're just attracted to black chicks. 
a consequence of accumulated external stimuli that you probably didn't even register as they registered with you. Did you program her to like me or not? I programmed her to be heterosexual, just like you were programmed to be heterosexual. Nobody programmed me to be straight. You decided to be straight? Please, of course you were programmed by nature or nurture or both. And to be honest, Caleb, you're starting to annoy me now because this is your insecurity talking. This is not your intellect. So yeah. do, you, do you feel like the movie would have benefited from someone else directing it? Uh, no, no. I mean, that's basically only the the one scene where I'm like, oh, that doesn't quite work. Although but you maybe also, you mentioned the scene where they were that's talking. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I'm actually thinking, and and maybe it's it's interesting listening to you guys discuss Alex Garland's uh, oeuvre, I guess, and Danny Boyle, and and how you're so mixed on it. And um, I mean, you guys did some advanced, you know, uh, advanced classes here and rewatched a bunch of stuff. And I haven't done any of that stuff <laughs> in a long time. I haven't seen many of those films, but I don't really have. Um, uh, and maybe it's because you you guys are rewatched them very recently so it's very much on the forefront but i haven't seen many of them in a long long time and i don't have nearly as many problems although i w i'm also one of the rare people that does was not thrown by um the third act of sunshine okay. and i like I, I really like sunshine i really like 28 days later the beach has always been uh so so and um but i i i also really like danny boyle and um I think the reasons um, I, I – I mean some people just go insane about the end of, of Sunshine. I know Ollie's like, man, that movie just shits the bed in the third act. <laughs> and a lot of people feel that way. But for me um, – and I've only seen Sunshine once actually. Mm -hmm. And I saw it in the theater and it was a very – like I was up close. Uh, it was just like a real visceral experience for me. Like just mm -hmm. like full on, holy shit, full throttle. Like I feel like – the the sunburst of these people that are being like overwhelmed. I feel like that's what the movie did to me. Yeah. So in that sense, um, it like it was this rush of heat and lava that just like knocked any sort of my suspension of belief disbelief problems like out the window. Like they just they just flew out like a like the like the um you know, the glass in the spaceship or something. Right. I mean, so. you're, just, you're just, that's a, such a great, that's an apt description for Danny Boyle. When Danny Boyle's filmmaking is working on an audience member, that's what yeah. it feels like, right? You yeah. don't, you don't care about the gaps in logic. If they're there, you, you might think about yeah. it after the fact, but you get wrapped up in his. Filmmaking. I totally, that, that's what happens to me. Like he's me just like, he, he, I, I haven't seen many of them a second time. And mm -hmm. I, I'm actually in general, I'm not a, uh, watch movies twice, kind of guy. Yeah, you're a Pauline Kale acolyte then. Uh, no, I don't want to be a Pauline acolyte, <laughs> and I want to put that on the record. I do not want to be a Pauline Kale Good. acolyte at all, and Good. I would never consider myself one. Um, uh, uh, for the record, yes. So that's, so that's known. Because you are you know, Rodrigo Perez. That well, is not even that, but no, thank you, because Pauline Kale, like I love so you. You pick brilliant. and then come back to the table with who you want to be. We could, we could each pick a critic that we want to be. It'll be like Dungeons and Dragons, both movie critics. Joe, Joe could guess what critic I want to be because I talk about him all the time. But you know, Rex no. Reed. No, Scott Tobias, you bastard. You know I love Scott okay. Tobias. Is this, a, is this a different different podcast? Are we going into the the what critic I want to be podcast? <laughs> we might have to. <laughs> yeah. <it's... laughs> but um, uh, but but Boyle, uh, um, it like his his propulsion yeah. and his kineticness um really worked for me mm -hmm. and um 
maybe has uh, um, masked uh, some of the problems in the screenplays of Garland's over the years. But I also think in, in some ways that's what you're supposed to do if you're a yeah. filmmaker. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's the, that's the kind of job you're supposed to give people a um, – you know, and, and, and if you've seen your movies a million times, what you have as your filmmaker, because you create them and you're probably fucking totally sick of them by the time you're done, hmm. is that you know exactly every one of your problems in your film. So sometimes you do your best to kind of mask them, you know? Right. That's another thing I found really refreshing about Garland in the interview rounds is how upfront he is about mistakes he sees in his movies. Like he he he's called out Sunshine for the same issues that people like Ollie, uh, writer for the playlist, ha- has brought up like that. He, he understands why people think that movie shits the bed in the end. And that's that's refreshing, too. There's a candor with him that makes him a fascinating interview. But Yeah, he, he really is. Yeah. Um, and I will say as well that Never Let Me Go, the film that he wrote, directed by Mark Romanek, is seems like he took a much more similar style and direction to how Mark Romanek made that movie for Ex Machina. It's interesting that he didn't he didn't really retain a lot of the Boyle propulsiveness for his directorial film. Uh, he he did take the more sort of muted, for the most part, uh, tone of, of Never Let Me Go, which is a movie I think I've been dying to, to re-catch up on because I remember thinking that was a really strong movie that um, was kind of undervalued. And uh, Joe and I are actually pretty big fans of the Dread movie that Alex Garland wrote, the recent one, which is a surprise. Yeah. That's the one I haven't seen. It's worth watching, I, dude. It really is. I haven't is. seen Dread because um... – I just didn't really have a lot of interest at first, other outside of him. You know what I, I mean? Yeah, I'd like say he was probably he was probably my only point of interest for that movie. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up Never Let Me Go because that's a movie that I'm really, really out of all of Garland's films, it's the one I want to revisit the most. Yeah. And but it's the one that I like the least. Interesting. Um, and but it's I, I like the least, and for reasons that like. Like everything about it is should be the reason why it's one of my favorites. It's so restrained. It's so muted. It's so like subtle and nuanced and has this emotion really like um, it's there, but it's so like um, almost like holding back tears, but you never cry. You're always in that sort of like yeah um, in this almost limbo state or something. And, and it just it kept me at bay emotionally. It, it was like, and so exquisitely made, so crafted, but it just kept me so emotionally outside it and so aloof. And I was so disappointed by that because normally all those things about her are things that I really admire in a movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, I love just his, his directorial restraint and it's such a graceful movie, but I didn't, it just didn't speak to me emotionally at all. And I felt like it was too subterranean in that way, but I really wanted to, to uh, revisit it to see if like it, if, if it would work for me again. Yeah, me too. I would love to watch that one again. I'd like to throw out there. And I think this might be a good angle for us to, to wrap things up, to close this loop here, guys is Joe, you, you brought Joe, not that long ago, you just referenced Blade Runner and it, I was thinking mm-hmm. as we were talking about authorial intent and what the audience takes away from something. And maybe Blade Runner is just a good example where by now Ridley Scott has for all intents and purposes said Deckard is a replicant. It doesn't matter what you thought, what version right. of the movie you've seen. I'm mm-hmm. saying he's a replicant. And, um, I don't know. Is there, and I think it, the idea of authorial intent, what the director intends can't always be the same. And it's, it's something that's gotten in the way in some ways for you, Rod, and enjoying ex machina, or just, it's like this thing that's sort of like nagging at you about it. I've just been stuck, you know, a little bit too much on, uh, 
what everything Alex had said. Because I spent, you know, I ended up spending like about an hour and a half with him that day, and we spoke in two different Q and A's, and we spoke during, afterwards, and before, and you know, on our way to the next one, and blah blah blah. So, but give me some time and distance, and and uh, I probably feel this different. And in in the case of like, I think I, I loved actually the the way you're closing loop because I feel like that's a really great example. Um, Blade Runner is something like I don't really care what Ridley Scott's intent is. Um, <laughs> Uh, is he a replicant or isn't he a replicant? I don't, I, I, I'm, I, I mostly think no, but I, I'm a weird case on that because I grew up with the original version mm-hmm. and I like the original version with the narration. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, like I, that's the version I grew up with. And, and not only the version I grew up with, the version I saw a zillion times because I had it taped off of like, you know, TV late at night where, and, and like the, the, the good version, not like the, the edited TV version. So I'd seen it a zillion times. I love the hard boiled uh, narration. I've only seen the other version once. So, um, and then that was like a, for me, it was like really strange because like a radically different experience to like, totally. I think it actually is a better movie, but um, it really was like almost, I was like, wow, this is so weird without the narration, you know, <laughs> it actually becomes so much more moodier and, and uh, enigmatic and, and it's really becomes like the masterpiece that everyone says it is. But at the same time, the movie I grew up with was a masterpiece to me, but it was just like this sci-fi thing with this Philip K. With a with a um, not Philip I was gonna say Philip K. did but a Philip Marlowe kind right. of like uh, like narration to it and I loved like you know those hard boiled sort of detective novels and I thought the marriage of the two was pretty amazing and okay I guess I haven't seen that version in a long time either like probably um, God since it's been out of circulation I don't know if it, maybe that no no it's back but for for a minute there you couldn't even get the narrated version for, getting back to the original point the, the you know the his version where it makes it uh, you know if not abundantly clear, it's certainly heavy suggestion about um, him being a replicant. That was never there in the original right. version that I saw. So it never occurred to me and, and it was never an issue. Um, it's a, it was almost after the fact that he was like, to me it almost felt at the time he was like backpedaling and pulling a George Lucas. Yes, you know? I agree. I agree. Um, so, um, um, it, and, and I'm sure he's, I actually recently just bought because I've been. It's funny that you bring this up. I've been thinking about that movie and thinking that I had not seen, um, like I'd only seen the the his version once, and I and I was feeling I wanted to see it again, so I recently bought it. Yeah, um, the final with, cut. Yeah, yeah, with the intention of doing that because then I was I realized, man, how weird is it that I don't own Blade Runner? <laughs> <laughs> well, and maybe like that. That's a whole topic for a whole nother podcast. It's just that idea of like how that can work against or for a movie in some way or, or another is like the authorial intent with what we come away with as an audience. And um, what I like another admirable thing about Alex Garland that he has talked about in interviews, he's, he likes the open, the, he embraces like, yeah, he has his view that he, that he sees the film as, but he's open to other people's interpretations, which, oh, yeah, is, yeah. which is really, yeah, which is really refreshing. It doesn't have to be in stone. Don't let me uh, kidnap you into my opinion, Eric, but like, <laughs> I feel like we've talked recently about how director's cuts oftentimes I'm finding that like the director's cuts aren't nearly as satisfying oftentimes yes. as, you know, the, the theatrical versions of them like for instance donnie darko like donnie darko is suffers from like something so overburdened um 
And like, uh, and it's just like the pacing is all off, and the mm-hmm. pacing is what I loved about the theatrical version. Unless the movie's cut down rating wise, like I don't really feel like I need to see director's cuts, especially like comedies suffer from that all the time, where it's like briskness is key. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like I, I find myself being like, well, I don't, I don't, maybe I don't agree with the director. Like I've certainly left Q and A's because I'm like, eh, I don't really want to hear what you have to say anymore. <laughs> and like directors are people that we often champion, and like I find myself having a conflicted relationship with. But this being, you know, Alex Garland's debut, like I, you know, as a director, even though he sort of like throws that, you know, role kind of out the window, like I feel like he's somebody who in his screenwriting credits has has continued to do something interesting with ideas. And um, a Q&A that I actually enjoyed was with Nicholas Winning Refn and Adam Wingard, where they were like, so you've taken on, you know, like, what? how do you make the transition to, like, franchises? Which seems like in this day and age, that's the end game, is just to get on a franchise, to make a bigger exactly. bigger movie for people. You know, like, we mentioned the Star Wars movies and how, like, now these actors that we've known for a long time and are interesting, like, this is the end game, that they're now a part of the Star Wars movies so everybody can see them. <laughs> and, like, Alex Garland already made, you know, for all intents and purposes, he didn't direct it, but he wrote a comic book movie. And he made the comic book movie he wanted to make. Yeah. And it's one that, like, the people who liked it loved it. And they, like, they, they're, they're rallying to get a sequel made. Which depresses me because, like, the whole crowdsourcing thing is a different discussion, and that's just a whole other bummer. But <laughs> it was one that definitely stuck with people. The people who, like, rode for it really rode for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I just feel like he's he's somebody that, like, given opportunities, having made splashes with, like, 28 Days Later being a hit, he went on to, you know, then make then write Sunshine for Danny Boyle, which like he didn't write the sequel for he didn't write twenty eight weeks later from for what I know. No, he did not. So like he's just continuing to do something interesting and I feel like how am I gonna tie this in? For Christ's <laughs> sakes, so how am I gonna close this loop? You're um, there, you're there. For all the problems we we have with directors, um I feel like he if he chooses to stay in the director's seat is a good one and an interesting one. I think you're right. Like, I mean, it's like for, if for any of the problems of these films you're talking about, which some of them may have, if you look at the body of work overall, it's okay. We'll certainly have you rather than like, you know, put you to bed, like some other like filmmakers or storytellers that we would rather like, you know, go away, you know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Garland is out there doing, doing good work and still like looks to be doing this kind of thing. He doesn't look like there's any kind of agenda to move forward to something bigger, better, more expensive. He just wants to tell good stories, which is what we're all here about. Why don't we wrap it up there, guys? I want to thank uh, both of you for coming on. Rod, I think you did a great job jumping into me and Joe's, you know, like me and Joe have been doing this together solo for almost three years now. So uh, well done getting your getting your words in there. And thanks for coming on, man. Let's We're going to have to do this more. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed this. I think, uh, I, I, yeah, I think this is a pretty good dynamic. We could try playing with this. And uh, the other thing I was thinking, I think you, you guys, you two work really well. And I think that, like, maybe that instead of adding, like, you know, 10 playlisters, it's just, like, one 
in, in, in your mix and then trying to see how that works. And, and uh, I totally agree, man. I, I, I think that'd be great. You can uh, find uh, me and Joe doing what we do on Adjust Your Tracking. And um, you can find Rod on the playlist and me on the playlist as well. So look out for that there. And thanks for talking with me, guys. We will uh, see you soon. Cool. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye. Thank you. Later. Kyoko. Kyoko. Where's Nathan? Where's Nathan? Jesus Christ, you really don't speak a word. What the fuck? Oh, no, no, no. No. Stop. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You don't have to do that. Keep doing. I told you, you're wasting your time talking to her. However, you would not be wasting your time if you were dancing with her. Go ahead, dance with her. Dance with her. No? You don't like dancing? She does. Come on, buddy. After a long day of Turing test, you gotta unwind. What were you doing with Ava? What? You tore up her picture. I'm gonna tear up the fucking dance floor, dude. Check it out.